you might have noticed um, this is the passage that uh, is so often read when we take Lord's Supper. And we're not taking Lord's Supper this morning. Now, there might, maybe there should be uh, a law against that, teaching on the Lord's Supper and not taking the Lord's Supper, but we're not going to today. We are next week. Um, and so the reason I'm covering this is we're continue, continuing a series called Devotion, Things We Ought to Be Devoted To. We're looking at uh, four key ingredients that the early church was devoted to, uh, which made them healthy and strong. Um, I'm taking my cues from the book of Acts, chapter 2. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on the day of Pentecost, and uh, thousands, 3,000 people were drawn to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, were saved, and this big group of people started gathering together, and they were devoted They were devoted, continually devoted, to four things. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. And I understand that to be they were devoted to Scripture. They were devoted to what the apostles were teaching. They were devoted to uh, the fellowship, which I take to mean they were devoted to one another. They were devoted to welcoming one another and putting others before themselves and seeking the good of one another and helping one another, all of these things, showing hospitality to one another and so forth. They were also devoted to the breaking of bread and they were devoted to prayer. Today, I'm gonna look at that phrase, they were devoted to the breaking of bread, which I take to mean the Lord's Supper. Of course, the disciples, the early early church, ate together from house to house, we see in Acts chapter 2 and later in the book of Acts, but they also were devoted to the Lord's Supper. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, I don't know your experience when you take the Lord's Supper, but um, not too long ago I, I was reading a book and I read a couple of quotes where some men from a long time ago shared their experience of the Lord's Supper and I was deeply challenged. Listen to how a man named Stephen Charnock, who was a 17th century uh, minister in England, how he described the Lord's Supper. He said, there is in this action more communion with God than in any other religious act. We have not so near a communion with a person by petitioning for something we want from them, or by returning him thanks for a favor received, as we have by sitting with him at his table and eating the same bread and drinking the same cup. Thomas Goodwin, who was another uh, Puritan minister, said this, of sermons, some are for comfort, some are to inform, some to excite, but here in the Lord's Supper is all that you can expect. Christ is here light, and wisdom, and everything to you. He is here an eye to the blind, a foot to the lame, yes, everything to everyone. When we come to the Lord's Supper, Christ is here with us, and we partake of him. We drink of the same bread and drink of the same cup. Now, if we're not careful, the Lord's Supper, like anything, but maybe this in particular, because it is kind of an outward ceremony, it can become just a religious exercise without a whole lot of meaning. We can just kind of go through the motions mindlessly doing what we've always done. 
We can view it as something that we simply tack on to the end of a service once a month. We do it once a month, typically. And as we see later, this is very dangerous to see it as kind of this mindless rote thing we do. Paul says that we are to be careful that we don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner. We don't want to do that. So what do we need to know about Lord's Supper to help stir up and solidify and deepen our devotion to the Lord's Supper like the early church? Well, there are seven things I want to draw out. And these seven things, listen, I'm kind of breaking them up, but they are so interwoven and interconnected. Here's the seven things. We're to take the Lord's Supper out of a sincere and loving obedience to Christ. We're to take the Lord's Supper in the conscious presence of Christ. We're to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ. We're to take it to proclaim the death of Christ. We're to take it together. We're to take it with reverence, and we're to take it with gratitude. So let's just look at these one at a time. First, we are to take the Lord's Supper in sincere obedience to Christ. And it all starts right here. We're to take the supper because Christ commands us to. And he's our Lord, right? What is a disciple except a disciplined, obedient follower of Christ? He commands us to take the supper. This is something Jesus tells us to do. The Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances, the other being baptism given by Christ. And this is something so very important to Jesus that at on the night before he was crucified, he gave this instruction. Verse 23 says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Now, if you, if a man or a woman knows, like knows, like really knows, tomorrow I'm going to die. Like tomorrow, I'm dying tomorrow. The things you talk about with the people you love are probably the most important things to you right? You want to talk about what matters. I mean, no dad with any sense is going to say, let's get one more video game in, right? Let's watch one more basketball game. You're going to talk about what matters. And this is what Christ, among other things, this is what he talked about. This was important to Jesus. We're commanded to keep this ordinance until Christ comes because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, right? Take the bread in remembrance of me. Do this, take the cup, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So first and foremost, and just very simply, we take the supper and we're devoted to it because Christ has commanded us to be devoted to it until he comes. The second, going right along with this, we take the supper in the conscious presence of Jesus. Not only is the supper to be taken in humble, sincere obedience to Christ, but in the presence of Christ. And I want to just put a word in there, in the conscious presence of Christ. Christ is here. And it's not just some mantra we, st- we say. Christ is here. And in the supper, in, when we take the supper, Christ welcomes us to his table to sit with him. This is so important. The Lord Jesus Christ is 
the host of the Lord's Supper. I'm not, or whoever is up here officiating that time is not. As a church, we are not. Christ is. Who was the one who broke bread and passed it to his disciples? Who's the one who passed the cup around? It was Jesus Christ himself. He sent his disciples to make the preparations for the Passover, but it was Christ himself, it was the Lord himself who hosted the meal. And he is, when we take the supper as well, he invites us to to his table even today. We must always remember that this is the reality. In the eating of the bread, we are feasting on Christ himself. He says, come to me and feast on me. In the drinking of the cup, we are drinking in the benefits, the blessings that come to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we need to understand in what manner the presence of Christ is is to be experienced. I think there's, historically, there's been a lot of confusion and debate over this. Roman Catholicism, they believe that Jesus is truly present physically in the bread and the wine. Maybe you've heard of the the teaching of transubstantiation or at least heard of that before. They believe that the bread and wine is truly transformed into the body and blood of Christ, physically. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was a lot, they, they rejected that, but there was a lot of debate on how Christ is present with us. A guy named Ulrich Zwingli, he believed the Lord's Supper was nothing more than a memorial supper and Christ was not with us in a special way present at all. Martin Luther believed in a way that was somewhat similar to the Roman Catholic Church. It was different, but it it seemed somewhat similar. In fact, there's this uh, history tells us that there was a gathering of Luther and Zwingli and others, and they couldn't come to agreement, and he just kept pounding his fist on the table saying, this is my body. Saying Christ is saying, this is my body. This is really my body. But I think it was John Calvin who probably got it right. He took the approach that Christ is truly present in and through the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said the night before he was crucified? He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he goes into the teaching of he's going to send the helper to be with us and he's going to be with us forever. It's the Spirit of Christ. It's Christ himself who comes and sits among us by his Spirit. Here's here's one thing that Calvin said about this. He said, dwelling in us by his Spirit, Christ raises us up to heaven, to himself, transfusing into us the vivifying vigor of his flesh. Now, vivifying, we've heard a lot about, you've heard the word revival. Well, you take the re off that word, and it's just vival, right? He's talking about Christ raises us up in the Spirit and infuses us or transfuses us with the vivifying vigor of his flesh. I think of Hebrews chapter 12, which tells us an explosive thing about worship, which if you're in Christ, this is talking about you. What what are we doing here this morning? Hebrews 12 tells us, You have come to Mount Zion. 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the saints made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Brothers and sisters, in worship, In worship, there is so much more going on than what our senses can perceive. I mean, our physical senses, our eyes, our ears. There's so much more going on. We are brought to Mount Zion and innumerable angels and Christ himself. And when we worship by faith, when we worship by faith, it is potent. It is potent powerful when we're just going through the motions not so much when we worship by faith it's powerful one thing as you read through revelation next time one thing to notice is what happens in heaven affects what happens on the earth and we are ushered up to worship hebrews 12 tells us and i think revelation does as well that we worship we are ushered up to worship in the heavenlies And it has a powerful effect on what happens on the earth. Worship is powerful. And it's the same with Lord's Supper, which is worship. Worship's not just singing. It's the same with Lord's Supper, which is worship. In the supper, there is a sweetness of communion with Christ available to us that I think is unparalleled. And so we're invited into the presence of Christ, the host, to sit at his table, to commune with him, to hear his voice. This is my body, which is for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. Those are the words of Christ, to hear his voice and to partake of him for the nourishment of our souls. Number three, we take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ. The Lord's Supper really is a memorial supper. It's just not only that. And it's important to to understand in what sense it is a memorial supper. I remember growing up, we would go to uh, my grandparents' place, uh, not every year, but we would often go there Memorial Day weekend. And it was small town Iowa, Corwith, Iowa, uh, really small town. And on, on Memorial Day, a bunch of people from the town would walk because no matter where you lived in town, you could walk in about 10 minutes to the cemetery. And there was a Memorial Day service for the people who had died. Well, this Memorial Supper is not like that because Christ is no longer dead, but we are to remember some things. Jesus said twice, do this in remembrance of me. The activity of taking the bread and the cup is to be done in remembrance. We are to remember something. And so this is not a mindless exercise. I, th- I know I've said this before. Please pardon me if, you get, if you've heard this too many times from me. But I, I do remember once somebody saying that one of the most important words in the New Testament is remember. For Christians, we It's not like we're learning all kinds of new things that God is whispering into our ear, but often we need to remember the things that we do know and have them stir our hearts up. 
So this is not a mindless exercise. This is key to remember. What's the focus on? Well, the word remembrance is used in only four places in the New Testament. Two here in 1 Corinthians 11, one in Luke 22:19, which is uh, Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, and one is in Hebrews 10:3, which tells us of the insufficiency of the repeated sacrifices in the Old Testament for sin, right? The, the writer of Hebrews said, there was always a reminder or remembrance of sins year by year. So the Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient because it could never permanently deal with sin. Well, the emphasis on the supper is to remember something, and brothers and sisters, it's not to remember our sin. What are we to remember in the supper? It is not our sin. Of course, it's good and right to know, like the old song says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And we're going to get to it a bit later, but there's a place for self-examination so that we don't come to the Lord's table with cherished sins in our hands as we take the bread and the cup. But the emphasis is not on my sin when we take the supper. The emphasis is on the one who bore my sin. It's on the sin bearer who bore them and took them away forever. Here's what Jesus said after he gave thanks and broke bread. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we take the bread, we are to remember the body of Christ, which is for us. Now, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was a real physical body that could feel pain, could be physically nailed to a tree, and was, and experienced real death, right? So that, that's what he experienced. That body, in accordance with the scriptures, in obedience to the Father, was offered for us. That's what Jesus is saying. And those two words, for us, are so precious. There's a galaxy of meaning in these two words. For you, or maybe you could say on behalf of you. It's the language of substitution. Christ was our substitute. He took our place. It's not that Jesus was nailed to the cross as our example, primarily. I mean, there's a sense in which he suffered as an example for us. In fact, we studied, we're studying 1 Peter right now, and we see that in 1 Peter, that he's our example on how to suffer. But that's not the main purpose of Christ being nailed to a tree. It was as our substitute. It was to take our place. Christ, our substitute, gave himself for us on our behalf, in our place. Paul put it this way in Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Do you hear the language of substitution there again? He became a curse for us. He took 
what we deserved. That's what we remember in the supper. He took what we deserved. He took my place. Peter's in total agreement in 1 Peter 2.24 where he said, He himself bore my sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed. Our Lord Jesus, who is no doubt the greatest authority, affirmed this as well. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh, my body. This is what we're to remember when we take the Lord's Supper. The self-giving Son of God who gave his body to be hanged on a tree for us. For us. And then verse 25 says we're to remember what his blood has obtained for us. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ poured out his blood. He gave up his life in order to secure for us the new covenant and every blessing found in it. Isn't that amazing? Every blessing. This is the new covenant in my blood. Christ offered up his life and every blessing God ever intends to give us comes through the blood of Jesus on our behalf. Paul calls it the cup of blessing. And how big is that cup? Big enough to satisfy us forever. For all eternity. Christ died in order that we might be united to him forever and receive every spiritual blessing in him. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son. Right? You guys know how that goes? I've said it enough times. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him give us all things? This remembrance of Christ and his blood were to remember that it was a single offering of Christ to remove sin for all time. I remember talking to a, a cousin of mine who is a, who is a devout and practicing Catholic. And um, this, is, this is probably five or six years ago. And if you know anything about the Roman Catholic understanding of the Mass and the Eucharist portion of the Mass, they believe not only in the real presence of Christ that he's there physically, but they, they believe that the, that the priest, when he prays the prayer of consecration, is, brings Christ down and that Christ is represented in his sacrifice again and again and again every Mass service. They call it an unbloody sacrifice, but they do say that it truly atones for sin. And I was visiting with my cousin about this, and I thought to myself and said this to her, your sins are never atoned for. It's never satisfied. God's justice for your sins is never satisfied in that system. Not only is it an abomination to what the Bible teaches, and I would say blasphemy, but think about the people who live under that. There's never peace with God. 
because your sins are removed and fully atoned for. There's no satisfaction for sin. When we come to the supper, we remember the one sacrifice of Christ to take away sin for all time for those who trust him. Hebrews 9.26, he has appeared once for all time at the end of the ages to put away sin, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, my, my fear is that Roman Catholics and Protestants, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but then we spend a lot of our days running on a treadmill trying to get closer to God. Because we're unsure. Or thinking that by, Reed said it earlier, thinking that by our merits, by what we do, by what we supply, we add to what Jesus did to bring us even closer to God. He has dealt with our sin so decisively and we are to remember what he's done on our behalf. We take the supper by faith, remembering the richness and fullness of what Christ has accomplished for us. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Number four, we take the supper to proclaim the death of Christ. Verse 26, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now the word proclaim means to announce, it means to declare, it means to publish, it means to make known. Of course, the way that we make known the death of Christ in the supper is not as much in words, right? Because we're, we're not talking about just preaching another message, but it's in action, taking the bread and the cup. There's a guy named John Owen, and he said, he used this phrase that I think is really helpful. He said, the Lord's Supper, what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a sanctified dramatization of the death of Christ. We show forth the sacrifice of Christ unto death, he said, in this sanctified dramatization. The gospel is proclaimed with the lips in the hearing of preaching, and the gospel is proclaimed in visible signs and action by taking the Lord's Supper. Now the question is, who are we proclaiming the Lord's death to? Certainly the watching world, not that, not that we necessarily have to broadcast it on social media or anything like that, but we do it publicly, right? So we do it before anyone who happens to be here. We are proclaiming this. But there's also a sense in, in, sense in which we are proclaiming the Lord's death to the whole unseen spiritual realm, the demonic realm. We are proclaiming that Christ has conquered them, Amen. We believe that. Colossians 2 says that Christ has conquered the devil and triumphed over him in the cross. But here is something else that I think we need to talk about, and it's probably what's mainly in view here. We proclaim the Lord's death to each other. We proclaim the Lord's death to one another. We announce, as we take the, as we take the bread and the cup, we, we announce the sufficiency of the one sacrifice of Jesus to each other as we take the bread and cup. I don't know about you, but there's something so rich about seeing others 
and this is going to get us into the next one. We do this together. But about seeing others take the bread and the cup with sincerity. One of the most powerful things about singing is that when we hear other voices, it's a way of singing praise to God, no doubt, but it's also a way of proclaiming his truth to each other. That's why I always think the best instrument to hear really well on Sunday is your voices. Okay? So, that's just, you know, as your pastor, just sing loud, please. I don't care if you sing well, necessarily. (laughs) I probably don't sing well, but I've been told that I sing loud by all of my kids. But it's to hear each other sing, and we proclaim these truths to each other. It matters. It really matters. For the building up of the body, it's not just about you. It's about us. And it's the same thing when we take the supper. We proclaim this to each other. We hold up the the bread and say, we hear his voice. This is my body for you. And we take it together and say, we don't say it, but we think amen. Praise the Lord. And we hold up the cup of blessing the new covenant in the blood of Christ, and we take it together, and we are proclaiming these things to each other. The unsearchable riches of Christ. We take the bread and the cup, and we proclaim, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So we take the bread and cup to proclaim the death of Christ. Number five, we take the bread and cup together. This is an ordinance to be done publicly as the gathered church. It's to be done as a body, as the people of Christ. Paul says four times in the context of our passage this morning, two times before and two times after, but same context. He says four times, when you come together. When you come together, it matters that we come together. This is not a time for us to go off into a corner by ourselves and just have time with me and Jesus. There's time for that. When we take the Lord's Supper, we do this together. He invites us to his table. This is maybe more of a pet peeve for me, but, but it's, it's not necessarily time for you to close your eyes. It's certainly not a time for you to imagine it's just you and the Lord. If anything, if anything, I think the New Testament says it's a time to open your eyes and look at those around you and think of those that are coming to the table with me. Think Jesus instituted this. They were sitting around a table. Jesus looked them in the eyes and no doubt they looked each other in the eyes as they took the supper. The Lord's Supper is to be taken together. It's not a snack you take while you watch church on TV and check Twitter. It's one, th- one of the more disturbing things that uh, bothered me about the government, sh- you know, I don't know if it's a shutdowns, but when they said, remember that whole discussion about three years ago at the beginning of COVID when there was this big discussion about essential and non-essential workers and gatherings? 
And in some places, you couldn't do Lord's Supper. Well, the, the government said, no Lord's Supper. It's too dangerous. 25 people, no Lord's Supper. But the Lord commands us to. We often approach the Lord's Supper, church, worship, and almost all of life, but maybe especially our spiritual lives as Christians in an individualistic sort of way. And I I love how Reed drew this out last week in the Lord's Prayer. We pray, our Father. It's great for us to pray my Father, right? He is my Father, but he's our Father. Paul is writing to the entire church at Corinth. Verse 23, he said, for, for, what, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The word you is plural. Verse 24, when Christ says, this is my body which is for you, you is plural. When Paul says in verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, you is plural. It's, I got a daughter who lives in Texas. It's, it's y'all, right? It's you all, right? You all proclaim his death. You all do this together. Of course, we should recognize that this was written to the church at Corinth as a correction because the way that they took the Lord's Supper had gotten really messy. It was kind of pretty chaotic. It was like some guy in the back would run up and push people out of the way and grab the cup and get drunk and somebody else would push, you know, get, get up there and grab half the loaf of bread and run off. And, and so there was a lot of problematic things going on there. There's no, no regard for one another. I don't think we're in danger of that kind of individualism. But we may be in danger of overly privatizing this by acting as though it's me and Christ instead of us and Christ. So let's be more mindful of each other and remember the, the Lord and proclaim his death to those around us. Number six, we take the Lord's Supper with reverence. Look at verses 27 to 29 if you have your Bibles or the bulletin. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So it's not insignificant how we approach the Lord's table. And of course, we've already talked about some other things, but it's not insignificant the attitude that we have. It matters to Christ. And it should matter to us as well. We're told that we can take the bread and cup in such a way that it actually incurs guilt concerning the crucifixion of Christ. If we don't take it in a worthy manner. We can take the bread and the cup in a way that actually we're eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. Now, that's not a popular thing to say. Right? We hear all the time, Jesus just loves you the way you are. And of course, there's truth there. Imagine 
Um, well, you can't imagine. My goodness, you can't imagine the Apostle John waltzing up to Jesus and doing a fist bump in Revelation chapter one. How did he walk up? How did he approach Jesus? He fell down before him. It's not insignificant how we approach the supper. We need to understand why Paul says this, of course. What was Paul's concern? Well, we hear hear the word examine. And often we think, well, what that means is you need to do a deep dive into your hearts to see if there's any hidden sin. You know what happens if you do a deep dive into your heart to see if there's any sin? You're going to find some. Probably going to find a lot. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I don't think he's saying examine yourself to see if there's any sin because guess what? There is. Of course, if there's obvious unrepentant sin, deal with that. If you came to church today harboring or if you come next week harboring cancerous bitterness and unforgiveness, confess it, turn from it, repudiate it. But the issue here, I think, is the phrase in verse 29 of discerning the body. We're to examine ourselves to make sure we're discerning the body. Now, there's debate on whether or not Paul is talking about discerning the body in in the sense of discerning the body of Christ, those around you, Because certainly that would fit the context in Corinth, right? The the people were coming to the table. They were not discerning those around them. They were there for themselves. Or whether Paul means discerning the body, namely Christ and his body on the cross. I tend to go with the second, the latter. But both matter. We need to discern the body. We need to discern. We need to have our eyes fixed on what Christ has done. And of course, we want to be discerning of the body of Christ, those around us. We are to, we are to come to the table with thoughtfulness and with reverence. It matters. And finally, we're to take the supper with gratitude. What did Jesus do when he took the bread? You guys know what he did? He gave thanks. He gave thanks. We should too. When we consider the presence of Christ and remember the perfect finished work of Christ on our behalf, what more can we do than give thanks? Give him thanks. Now I'm going to say something. I don't, I'm not saying this is authoritative. It, it isn't. This is just me. I'm just a thought that I have. But I think there may be no more accurate thermostat about your spiritual condition than the level of gratitude and thanksgiving that you have for Christ. And, I, and, and me too. And I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged by that. But a heart of gratitude, a heart that, what is gratitude? What, do you, what is it to have a heart of gratitude? Well, your eyes are open to see the massive, like, you know, every parent teaches their kids, you, you have so much to be thankful for. 
right? Every parent teaches their kids, and every kid has to learn that lesson, to have their eyes open to see, okay, I don't have, I don't have this thing that I want, but look at all that I have. And as believers, he's given us everything. He's given us everything. And the Lord's Supper, we, he, inv- he says, come to my table and just remember all that you have in me. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. And I'm not a very thankful person sometimes. God forgive me. A grateful heart Truly a grateful heart overflows in giving thanks. Saying thank you. And so we ought to come to the table with thanksgiving. The giving of thanks. And so what are we to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, Paul says, he says, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It, it really, examine yourself. It re, that really, you know, I've heard some people address this passage and just say, because examine yourself doesn't mean massive introspection, it doesn't mean anything. That's not true. It does mean something. We don't want to come mindlessly just doing something that we've always done. Examine yourself. First and foremost, are you a Christian? Have you repented of your sins? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Are you, is, is, is your hope in Jesus Christ exclusively? Do you believe that through his sacrifice, your sins have been buried in the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again? Are you grateful for that? Examine yourself. We ought to examine ourselves. Are you following Christ in a life of humble, repentant, Obedience. The Lord's table is truly for sinners, but it's for repentant sinners. And of course, we're not only sinners. I get that. But it, but it is for, it's for people who still sin. But it's for repentant sinners. Believing sinners. And so examine yourself. And if you can say enthusiastically, yes and amen, all of that. I'm following Christ. I love him. Not perfectly, but I'm then the invitation to the table is come and welcome to Christ. And Christ says come and welcome to my table. That's how we approach the Lord's Supper. And so, you know what? I kind of wish we were doing it this morning. We're not. But um, think about these things. Meditate on these things for next week. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword.